Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone. I am so excited to be hosting you here again on Claim Your Confidence, and I am more excited about the incredible woman who is sitting in front of me today. My guest is an old friend, someone I've known for probably 14 or 15 years at this point, which is incredible to say. Sandhya, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me, Lydia. I'm so excited to be here. I want to start off by telling everybody a little bit about you. I've known you, as I said, for a long time. We worked together early on in our careers, and it has been such a pleasure to watch your career flourish since that time. But for those of you who have not met her yet, she will be on your radar from now on, I promise. Sandhya Jane Patel is a passionate DEI specialist and multicultural content strategist. She's the manager of diversity and inclusion at Lucasfilm. She supports all of the studio's employee resource groups, which spans multiple continents, cultures, and dimensions of diversity. She also serves on the Global Content Council, bringing her full range of cultural competencies to bear to provide feedback on various pieces of Lucasfilm's IP. Her book, Beyond Diversity, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller and was named a 2022 must-read by Inc. magazine. So, Sandhya, that is an incredible entry because, obviously, you have an amazing bio. But I want to know about you. So, let's start at the very beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Marlboro, New Jersey, which is, I think right now, probably 70 to 80% Jewish and 20 to 30% Indian. Interesting. Because of all of the AT&Ts that are located in central Jersey. And so there's a lot of brown people living in that area. But when I was growing up, I was the only Indian girl in my school system until I was 15. Wow. So talk about lack of inclusion or diversity. Yeah, (laughs) but probably set the chart and charted the path for where you are today. It's true. Yeah. And how did your parents come to New Jersey? Were they from New Jersey? So my parents were born and raised in India. Okay. And so they immigrated here in the late 70s. And my father came over, started working for off-track betting because that was the only job he could get at that time. Went back to India, had an arranged marriage with my mom. They knew each other for maybe 10 days before they got married. Are they still married today? (laughs) They still are married today. They still live in New Jersey. Incredible. Um, We did a brief stint in South Carolina. So that was interesting in my formative years to have a be a a person of color in the South. What years were those in your life? Uh, I was probably there from kindergarten through second grade. So I was probably like four to six years old, four to seven years old. And growing up in the South, so I feel like I can ask you this because I can imagine that that was very different even in New Jersey, I've lived half of my life in both places. So I really understand that there's a very different perception and also just a different environment surrounding that ethnicity and the inclusion of ethnicity in culture. So talk a little bit about South Carolina versus New Jersey as a woman who is Indian or a little girl at that point. Thank you for asking that question. I mean, South Carolina, let's put it this way. I was not perceived to be Indian, I was perceived to be non-white. Interesting. And so I was lumped in with all, well, there was one black girl and me. And there was a, oh gosh, I forget what it was called, but it was some sort of like Native American youth group, kind of like a Girl Scouts, but it was for appreciation of indigenous culture. 
except it was just called Indian at the time, like the little Indian scouts troop or something. And of course, I was the only Indian girl in that South Asian Indian, not indigenous Indian, right? And so there was a lot of confusion about the gaze being on me, mm-hmm. you know, from the outside gaze. And then there was confusion within me about, okay, where do I stand? Who am I? Mm-hmm. And my parents coming over here in the 70s, being Indian was not an asset. Mm-hmm. And so we were taught to be as white adjacent as possible, which was difficult because clearly we're not white. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you are, you can hide certain dimensions of diversity, you know, whether you're, it's gender, sexuality, religion, et cetera. But when your skin color is different, that is a beacon of projection of your difference, of your dimension of diversity. And so how do you hide that? You don't. Yeah. So did you try to hide it at that age? Or were you too young to even really understand? Or was there just sort of the way that you were living your life, you understood it and were also adapting to it at the same time? Absolutely. You know, as you know, as a parent, children are taught even before they understand what it is that they need to do. And the intellectuality behind it comes much later. Mm -hmm. There are studies that talk about covering four different dimensions of diversity. Black women talk about covering at work, especially. And I was taught to cover, to hide my food, my religion, or lack thereof at the time, my second language, my clothes, et cetera. They were trotted out as... uh, check marks when the time was right. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, it was not encouraged to be on display. In fact, my father became an atheist when he came to this country, I think because he just didn't want to have to deal with the complication of navigating life as a Jane, which is a very strict religion, Mm -hmm. with Western society. It's remarkable, too, because in the South, religion is such a huge part of life. You know, I know having grown up in Louisiana, most of the things aren't even open on Sundays because everyone is at church. And that can be a church of many different kinds. You can be Baptist or Presbyterian or a myriad of different Christian religions. But Mm -hmm. the variety outside of Christianity, even as someone who grew up in Louisiana, I really don't recall it at all. We went to chapel five days a week in school. And so church to me was really the only religion. And I imagine it was a lot like that in South Carolina. You left in second grade and you went to New Jersey. Was that a happy move for you? You know, it was. I mean, I loved South Carolina. I loved my friends. I remember being happy there. I think I also have the gift of um, optimism. Yeah. And so most of the time I'm sort of blissfully ignorant if people are being obnoxious or derogatory or pessimistic towards me. I just sort of don't even see it, which, as I said, is sometimes a blessing and sometimes a curse. I do remember my second grade teacher saying to me, you're moving to New Jersey. Oh, there are heathens up there because oh. she's Bap- she was Baptist. <laughs> she was Baptist. <laughs> I love the use of the word heathens. Right. Too. And I was sort of like, well, I don't know the difference. <laughs> Am I a heathen? Like, I, whatever, you know, that, that sort of realization that I was, again, not part of the tribe or not belonging, et cetera. Just, I was like, all right, it's time to get out of here. Um, it's interesting that perception of other, and yes. there is that in the North and South too, because I went to high school in Connecticut and I remember arriving and everybody was sort of like, well, down in the South, do you guys go to church where there are snake handlers? And I remember thinking, no, but that does sound incredibly entertaining. Maybe I should look into that. But there were all of these things, like my accent smoothed mm-hmm. out over the years because mm-hmm. people would repeat things back to me. And so even that dynamic between the Southern and Northern is an interesting for you to have come from the South to the North, but also being Indian at the That's same right. time. That's right. So in the school that you went to in New Jersey, you were the only Indian girl, you said. That's right. And then 
you went to high school. Where did you go after high school? So when I was in high school, actually another Indian girl joined. And of course, being the way that it was, we were unfortunately more competitive towards each other rather than supportive. So I do regret that that dynamic existed at that time. But after I left high school, I went to Rutgers University. It was funny. There were 20 people in my high school class. This is like a nerd program that I was in within a larger (laughs) high school. And um, 10 of us went to Rutgers. So interesting. Yeah. And so I was there and I was there for undergrad where I majored in arts and sciences. And then I went on to get a master's degree from the medical school there. So I read an article about you where you talk about your relationship with your father. Mm. And I think confidence is one of those things that is born at such an early age. And one thing that you said about your father that really struck me was that your father never talked to you as a girl versus a boy. He just talked to you about you as a person excelling in life. And he was instrumental in teaching you English and also math. Absolutely. He insisted, (laughs) as most, uh, I guess, immigrant parents do, that their children have to be better than the average student because they're aware of, or he was aware of, all of the obstacles that were in my way, whether I was, and, and didn't enumerate them for me, didn't want me to feel bad or, or, uh, discouraged already from the very beginning, but he wanted to make sure that I had the tools to, again, be blissfully ignorant or unaware of them as time passed. So he was very strict about doing all of my math work for the school year ahead of time in the summer. So I had the whole summer course of math before I entered the school. How wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised he could get you in there. I'm not sure my parents could have made me stay in a room to do math for an entire summer. It's impressive. He did it at home. He he taught me things at night. I had to do the homework the next day while he was at work and he would check it at night. I mean, it was like summer school, but at home. And I also had to learn 10 new vocabulary words a day. I think it was. So like write them in a sentence. And it's I amazing. still can't do the New York Times crossword. That's my husband's domain, but you know, <laughs> it's fine. Do you do this with your children? No. Yeah. So I think as you probably have uh, instituted in your own life, there are certain lessons you take from your parents. You're like, oh, that was a great idea. I'm going to continue to do that. And certain things you're like, hell no. So, <laughs> And why is that? Because you resented it as a child? I did. Yeah. I did. And I think also there's a stronger understanding of social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. And especially of racial and social justice lenses. Mm -hmm. And I really prefer for my children to lean into those areas more heavily. That's great. They're smart. They're talented. They're doing great in school. Touch wood. We're about to move to California and have to find new schools for them. But that's not going to be a problem for them. The social emotional is, as we know, emotional intelligence, which influences confidence, Mm -hmm. is key more than anything else, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you have that in spades. No, thank you. You left Rutgers, and then was Christie's your first stop? How did you choose the art world? Because when we talk about, and you've, you've given us the backdrop of your life, which up until this point, you're living in predominantly white areas. The art world, even until recently, and I mean very recently, has been a very white domain. So what was that like for you? Why the art world? How did that capture your imagination? Yeah, so when I was an undergrad, senior year, I took a course on Caravaggio, a seminar, art history seminar. And our teacher showed us an x-ray of the martyrdom of St. Matthew. And I was like, what? You can take an x-ray of a painting? Are you kidding me? Forget people. I don't want to be a doctor of people. I want to be a doctor of art. And there was just something about that. Again, this idea of rebelling against my father's teachings about there being a right answer to everything, Mm -hmm. that always struck me as being very narrow-minded. 
right? Like, where's the gray? Where's the conversation around what could be possible? And math and science had right answers, but the arts did not. There was a whole like world opening up. I literally heard trumpets and like saw the pearly gates talk about Baptist like background. <laughs> There's your Southern um, upbringing coming southern in. Upbringing. There you go. <laughs> when I saw this x-ray of the martyrdom of St. Matthew, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. So even though I was already committed to a master's of science program, while I was there, I also got all the credits I needed to go into art history and fine arts conservation. And this question of why did I continue to be the only person of color in a bastion or a sea of white people otherwise? I actually felt comfortable there. After being raised in that environment for so long, there was nothing, I didn't know different and I didn't want to know different. I actually kind of reveled in being an intruder or being the only person of color and sort of like, haha, I got you. I'm here. You can't kick me out. I know what I'm doing, yeah. right? So there was a, a confidence in knowing that I had beaten them at their own game in yeah. a way. Yeah. There's something incredibly empowering about being the first Yes. to do something and then to excel because inherently you also, whether or not at that age you understand it, are showing other people it can be done. Yes. And that's I mean, an incredibly, I mean, talk about a gift. It's a gift for the people who come behind you, but also on the inside for you, it's a huge gift because you see that you can make an impact, which is ultimately what you do over the course of your career. So did you apply to Christie's? Was that your first stop after college? Yes. After grad school, I went on a Fulbright scholarship to India. That Amazing. was sort of like the heritage trip. So I was like, all right, if my parents are not going to teach me anything about where I come from and what this situation looks like, I'm going to go there and figure it out for myself. And you'd never been to India before that? Oh, I, no, no, no. I should take that back. I had been going to India regularly every four years growing up, uh -huh. but those were always trips with family. Mm -hmm. And there was some sort of like, let's go see the sites kind of thing. But really when my parents, when my grandparents were still alive, my parents wanted to spend time with them, which mm -hmm. makes sense. But I needed to have those relationships with my family members without the filter of my parents. Mm -hmm. And I needed to come to terms with my relationship with my mother country on my own. Mm -hmm. um, again, without the filter of my parents or that lens in between. So what was that trip like? It was crazy. I mean, it was really eye-opening in a lot of ways. Understanding the country that my parents left behind did not exist. India has become so modernized in the time, you know, since the 70s. Sort of understanding a lot of family dynamics that were a little bit of a mystery to me. Understanding how to navigate that country and, and code switch and cover all the things that people of color talk about. Like I got there, you know, I like to brag that I was considered a, a local. I paid the Indian rate for going into the Taj Mahal, whereas my boyfriend, or at the time, my husband now, who's also Indian, uh, had to pay the American rate. <laughs> that's amazing. And that, you think going back to what we talked about earlier, that's the social EQ, right? That's being a cultural chameleon, being able to go in exactly. and and figure out what needs to be done to fit in and not rock the boat in many ways. That's exactly on point, Lydia. Thank you for that term, cultural chameleon. I yeah. love it. It's really great. <laughs> I feel like I understand that in many ways. And I think, frankly, working, and it probably was a gift working in the art world yeah. because in many cases, it's interesting, you're working at a place like Christie's where you're surrounded by the world's wealthiest individuals. And yet you certainly aren't making the salary that's in any way, shape or form commiserate with that. But you have to understand and be able to converse in a language, even though it isn't the life that you're living. Absolutely. So you apply to Christie's and you have your Fulbright scholarship trip to India. You come back and then what is that like? You walk in the doors on the first day. 
I remember I was wearing a new white suit. It was July of 2005, so it's a while ago. And yeah, I mean, my colleagues were there from my original team at that time. Our business manager, Jonathan Stone, I don't know if you remember him. He was there from London and he was just like, oh, Sandhya, so lovely to see you, or whatever (laughs) the British accent would be. And I was just like, wow, I, again, I made it. I'm here. Yeah. Obviously, internally, there's always that imposter syndrome going on. And externally, you have to project confidence. And internally, you just have to keep building it up. And it's sort of one of those things where you look in the mirror every morning and you're like, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And I'm here, you know. So it took a little while to get there. I love that what you just said about imposter syndrome, but then you have to have the confidence at the same time. I feel like that was... I can tell you that is spot on with the way I felt. Probably the first decade I was there and you're looking at me saying no. And that's how I would look at you though, (laughs) Sandia. Honestly, I always thought you were incredibly confident. You always came across with such confidence. And I love to hear you say that because I think there are so many women out there who look at people like you and think, my God, she's so successful. She's just always been that way. And she's had the confidence to walk into a room and feel that way always. And that's not the case. It's not the case for many of us where... We would walk in time and time again, and we felt like we shouldn't be there. And yet there was something that made us want to stay there and wanted to try and wanted to get that gold star and get to the top. (laughs) So you worked in which department? What was your first department? So I was in the Indian, Himalayan, and Southeast Asian department my entire career while I was there, actually. And I started out as a junior specialist, and I worked my way up to being the head of the department. But what is your day-to-day as a junior specialist? Because people love oh, to know about the auction world. What do you do as a specialist? It's such a fun job. But, it is a but fun also job. But never, also never ends. <laughs> it is a lovely time to spend in your life if you can get it. You just get to look at beautiful things and you get to research them. So you get to look at all the books that has ever been written about this field and you get to study them and you get to make comparisons. It's basically art history on and on and on. That is your job. And what's lovely about it, I mean, because you could also do this as an academic, you can do this as a you know, professor, et cetera. I liked being the specialist because it's really, again, that internal exploration of the gray, mm-hmm. right? It's not like in academia where you have to kind of produce and have a right answer. And obviously at the auction house, you have to produce as well. But there was something lovely about looking at something and saying, is it more like A? Is it more like B? Mm-hmm. And then if it's more like A, how do we put that financial lens on it? You know, what is this worth in the market today? If it's more like B, how much is it going to be worth now? And then the additional step, which doesn't really happen, I don't think, in academia, is selling the story to an everyday person. Yeah, making them, convincing them of why this should be in their collection. Exactly. You know, why do they want to live with it? Why do they want to take care of it? You know, be the next caretaker of this work of art, which is hundreds or thousands of years old, because I dealt with antiquities. And just this idea of storytelling, which I think has been a theme throughout my life, is how do I tell the story of this work of art? And in that physical, tangible item, convey the story of my history, of my mother country, of my culture to this person. And maybe there was a, a question of is this worth something to anybody else other than me? Mm-hmm. And maybe there was a sense of validation and like, oh, you're going to pay $27 million for that. 
<laughs> I, I guess, guess people it's, do I like brown art, yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> and your culture and who you are and your exactly. heritage and all of those things. Exactly. When you talk about your storytelling, the other part that I love so much about is there are so many dimensions to your story. And I learned this because I had the benefit of training Sandhya to be a charity auctioneer, yes. which was so fun because <laughs> I'll tell you, as the person who sits there watching all of the people who come into trials, and it can be sort of anywhere from 15 to 20 people who start on that first day, there's always someone in the class, and it can be a three to four day thing where I'm sort of cutting people every single day. But there's always someone, sometimes two people who walk in, and I and I sort of say to myself, okay, that's that's an easy A. You know, there's there's no question. <laughs> and I remember you came in. I remember thinking that about you. But then what I remember the best part was afterwards when I, when I passed, I remember having the conversation to say, like, you passed and you're going to start taking auctions. And you said, well, it makes sense because I'm a Bollywood dancer. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah, you said that. And I remember thinking... Oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And then I went and Googled <laughs> Bollywood dancers and found myself in a black hole of Bollywood dancing videos. It was it was such a day in my life. I was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh but my you were God. also starting an off-Broadway show. I mean, yeah. you were a fashion designer. There's so many things that really make up who you are because yeah. you're never satisfied with one thing. There are always so many things going on. And so when you eventually left Christie's, it was sort of like all of these things came together and then you started your own company, really. That's right. So That's tell right. us about that company, because, again, this company, you were so ahead of your time with this company. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, at the time, I started a consulting company called SRC Partners with my friend Ruhi Pandia, who is actually now going to be forming the first South Asia house at South by Southwest this Amazing. March. That's really exciting. And she's a producer, and I have this cultural strategy content storytelling behind me. And basically, I said, look, when I first started at Christie's in 2005, I was also hired separately as a consultant for two Hollywood films that year. And they hired me because they wanted to get the brown stuff right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's what I want to do, actually. Again, it's this continuity of wanting to tell my story or see my story being reflected properly in the media around me mm -hmm. because that didn't exist and still is in formation, let's say. Yeah. And so we started this company together and we started consulting for different projects and working on scripts and scenes and just anything that anybody wanted help with when it came to, and not just Indian or Himalayan or Southeast Asian, South and Southeast Asia and the diaspora, but if you wanted help with figuring out how to portray someone who has a disability mm -hmm. or someone who is of a particular gender or sexuality or identifies as a certain religion, all of those things need to have someone's real story behind it. One person does not represent an entire community or culture or society, but one person's story and using those particular nuances and details of that person's story reflected in your movie or in your book or whatever makes that story real. Can you You're, give an example of that? Yeah, so I'll talk about Accidental Husband. So I worked on this movie I don't know if anybody saw it, but it came out like in 2006 or seven or something. And it was directed by Griffin Dunn and it had your friend Uma Thurman in yeah, it and Uma. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. And oh, and it had um, Isabella Rossellini in it, who I got to get my makeup done next to in the trailer. And I was like, tell oh me she's God. as wonderful as I think oh, she is. Oh, she's amazing. She is. I love she's her. She's amazing. <laughs> um, so the primary couple was Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Uma Thurman, but supporting them was a secondary couple that were Indian. Sarita Chaudhary and Ajay Naidu, who are the actors that portrayed that couple. And 
you may have heard this recently with the Sex and the City reboot that came out. Yes. Sarita Chaudhary was in that as well. Uh-huh. And she walked into a store with Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah Jessica Parker, thank you. <laughs> and they looked at an Indian outfit and they called it the wrong term. That is blatant. Anybody who knows anything about South or Southeast Asian culture is going to look at that and be like, why does she call it A? It's really B, right? Clearly, nobody in the production from script writing to the end result caught that or understood that that was a problem. And it's not fair to ask the actor who appears to be of South Asian origin Mm -hmm. to call that out. It's not their job. They're there to do a specific job, and especially with movie making or TV production, everybody has to stay in their lane and do their job Mm -hmm. so that things can get done on time and on budget. Now, if I had been there... (laughs) Side note to anyone who needs to hire you. Exactly. (laughs) You don't want to call it the wrong thing because you will immediately face a backlash, which is what happened with them. And there are other problems with that storytelling that people have called out. I don't need to name them, but this is the kind of thing that happens. So like with Accidental Husband, when they had Sarita and Ajay there, Griffin wanted to make sure they were portraying a scene from their culture, North Indian culture, and they wanted to make sure they got it right. Yeah. And it was really kind of a humble jumble between North Indian, South Indian, is it Hindu, is it Muslim, et cetera. And so when I came in, I was like, let's Let's make this right. Yeah. If you get it right, nobody notices. But if you get it wrong, people really call you out on it. When did you start your company? What was the year? I started this during the pandemic, actually. During the pandemic. And I feel like this is such a moment. And as you've just said, because social media has such power and people do notice. And in fact, not only do they notice, they look for things yes. to find. They look <laughs> for that clickbait. So you have to be so buttoned up on yeah. every single level to ensure that you are doing the right thing. And so you've obviously timed the formation of your company well. And obviously this has been influenced by your entire life getting to this point. That's right. How did you find your clients? Was it just sort of an evolution of they knew that you were doing the, this incredible work and they started referring you or were you outreaching to people in offering this service? And did people really understand it? That's a great question. It was a combination of outreach as well as just talking to people every day and saying, oh, that's really interesting. Obviously, social media, putting out your thought leadership. This was a really good example of how cultural consulting done right, that kind of thing. There was a lot of people, especially who may be of an older generation in the industry who were sort of like, I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Could, let me help you. Exactly. That's my job. I can, help my you, job. I can help you understand that Exactly. Better. Exactly. But I think that probably what people didn't see at the beginning, you know, three years in, yes. they very much see now again because of the power of social media. You say one wrong thing and it is on the cover of everything and you have to be so careful with the words and the way that you use them, but especially when you're speaking about cultures that are not your own, that exactly. you don't understand. Exactly. So and you really get Roxanne, a voice. Exactly. And Roxanne Gay in the New York Times talks about this a lot, like who can say certain stories. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people have had this debate. And I think as long as you have the right people in the room to help with the story making and the initial ideation of it, there's no problem with who gets to execute but if you don't even take into account those voices and those representatives from those communities, you're creating in a vacuum yeah. and it cannot possibly reflect reality in any way, shape, or form. And as you know, anytime you write a book or a story or anything, it's hugely collaborative. Yeah. So there's no, there should be no ego or no problem in saying, hey, I need help with this. 
can I pick your brain? I mean, Lin-Manuel, when he was writing Hamilton, he reached out to all the people that he was borrowing from and saying, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to borrow this uh, line from your rap or whatever, and I'm going to put it in the story. And everyone's like, yeah, sure, take it, great. Yeah. You know? It's the awareness piece that's Absolutely. so important. And so you've been running your company for, I mean, it's been three years. How did you find Lucasfilm or Dare I say, how did they find you? <laughs> how lucky are they? Well, thank you for that. The good news is that they are not a client. I now work for them full time. Amazing. So, how did that come to happen? I basically, gosh, this is a little bit embarrassing, but jump in. <laughs> it's a podcast. Nobody will hear this. <laughs> As a child, the only place that I found any sort of reflection of my reality was in Disney. I think most children are that way. Disney has been creating stories for that segment of the population, which, of course, all segments of the population, but specifically geared towards that age group mm. of creating stories that children can believe in. And growing up, that was, I mean, I, it's, it sounds so corny, I know, but like the magic of Disney has stayed with me my entire life. Mm. You know, when I was 16 and the first Little Mermaid came out and I was like, wow, this is an example, and again, I can intellectualize this now, but at the time I didn't really understand it in this way, but it was the story of an other mm -hmm. trying to be part of somebody else's world. Yeah. And that is my story. I am another, I'm an outsider, always trying to be a part of a world that I kind of don't belong in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I don't know. There's something about the pandemic, as you know, where you're like, what am I waiting for? Yeah. A pandemic? Oh, wait, right? So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I have this great company. I'm working well with Ruhi. We love what we're doing. But the dream, if I'm really going to be honest with myself, is I've always wanted to work for Disney. Side note, Star Wars is our family religion. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So I applied for every single diversity and inclusion job at Disney. Didn't get any of them. I interviewed somehow for this one role at Lucasfilm. I found someone, the power of networking, as you always say, network or die. Network or die. Um, I found someone on LinkedIn who I'd been connected to for a while. I said, look, I want to apply for this job. Can you get me in front of the recruiter? Within an hour, I had an interview scheduled with Lucasfilm. I couldn't believe it. I went through the whole interview process. I didn't get the job. So I want to I want to <laughs> pause for a second and just say one more time for everyone who's listening who thinks that everybody gets handed things on a silver platter and that they work easily. You didn't get any of the jobs before the job that you didn't get. So again, rejection <laughs> is part of the equation always, people. Always. When you're going big, you're going to get rejected. And that's okay. And that's okay. Because rejection is pivoting. Yeah. Right? We know this now. And, and I literally, I've learned this in the last year, that failure is not failure. It's pivoting. Mm -hmm. it, it's shaping you into the place that you need to be going eventually. Yeah. I didn't get the job at Lucasfilm. I cried for a day. And then I was like, all right, this is a sign. We don't have to move. We can stay in New York City. My kids can be at the school that they love. I can just do this as a consultant, as I have been doing for the past two and a half, three years. And then two months later, I get a call. Hi, we're really interested in exploring an option with you. And I'm like, who's this? <laughs> and basically, they had a job that needed backfilling, a manager of diversity and inclusion at Lucasfilm. The first role I applied for was for content, which is obviously what I'm very interested in. Mm -hmm. That went to the right person. Mm -hmm. And I am now the manager for diversity and inclusion, internally supporting all of the employee resource groups globally, 
which again brings in that multicultural lens that I have grown up with mm-hmm. and honed at Christie's and really talks about how dimensions of diversity are similar across the world, but also obviously very different depending on where you're located. Yeah. It's fascinating. And you love every day of it. You told me it's your dream job. (laughs) You said that. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so the other piece of this as a mom of two is, and you said this, your kids are happy. They're in the school that they love. You're living in New York. This is all going very well. And then you're moving to California. So the other piece of this is when you follow your dreams, you sometimes bring your family along with you, you know? (laughs) And I think that that's another thing people are really scared of is shaking it up and doing something new. And you said this earlier, the pandemic was a great mirror for all of us, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. We all thought it had to look a certain way and we actually found out that it doesn't at all. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think if you don't have the support at home, you can't do anything like this, right? Absolutely. And I will say that my husband, Samir S. Patel, who is editor-in-chief at Atlas Obscura, is hands down the best partner that I could have even dreamed of. I mean, talk about a dream job. I have a dream partner. And I wish this for everybody. One cannot achieve their dreams without full unconditional support at home. And he is totally there for it. He wants to get a mountain bike and like go riding around in California. And I'm like, what are you talking? Okay, fine, whatever. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) That'll be the next step. (laughs) And do you think that part of that is communication at home and ensuring that the communication lines are open? Because I too have a very supportive spouse, which I often speak with women who are incredibly powerful. And frankly, on the other side, men who are very incredibly powerful. And you have that equal spouse at home who is supporting your dreams and vice versa. I think it's all about communication. Truly. Absolutely. And this is something a friend of mine talks about. She's a therapist and she and her husband came to the realization, for example, that neither one of them liked doing the laundry. Oh, yeah. And she finally had to talk with him and she's like, look, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. Can we find a solution? Outsource it. Yeah. Because what happens is it's not, what did somebody once say? It's not the big things that are going to break you. It's the small things, yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Did you leave your dirty socks on the floor again? (laughs) Did you leave the toilet seat up? Did you leave the toothpaste open? Like, those are the things that are going to annoy the crap out of you every single day. Wear you down over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, Sandia, this has been such an incredible pleasure. I can't even tell you you how much I've loved having you here. Can you tell us where to find you, where to find your book? Give us everything so we know where to look. And frankly, if anyone has something coming out where they need an incredible specialist to lend a few words and some advice on anything, Sandia's your woman. So tell us where to find you. Thank you. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Sandia Jane Patel. That's probably the best way to reach me. I try not to do social media, although Lydia, you are so inspiring in that way. That's for sure. (laughs) I love it. Um, The book Beyond Diversity, I think you can find it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. I am working on a second book that I've put a pin in, which is a fantasy sci-fi novel based in Indian mythology. And I've actually am working on the outline for a third book about career pivots, hashtag Jane of all trades. I love it. I love it. (laughs) I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to follow along and see what happens next for you. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Lydia. Absolutely. And I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in again this week for Claim Your Confidence. You can follow along at Lydia Finette on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where I will be posting updates about upcoming guests. I also podcast live out of the lobby of One Rockefeller Plaza in a glass front podcast booth. So please stop by the podcast booth and say hi, take a picture and share on social. 
A special thanks to Newsstand Studios, Rockefeller Center, and of course, my producer, Joe, who keeps everything running behind the scenes. I want to leave you all with this. As you look out over the landscape of your life, as Sandia has done and shown us with such incredible career moves along the way, what are you doing to take risks? What are you doing to put yourself in a position where you can say, I have my dream job? DM me on Instagram, DM Sandia, let us know. We will support you. Thank you all again so much for tuning in. And I can't wait to speak to you again next week. Have a great one.